Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 101 of Groove, the No Trouble podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. I do always start my show with the same question, which is, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> my name is Guy Pratt. I'm, uh, I don't know, on my, on my sort of most of my social media bios, it says bassist waffler. And yeah, because at the moment these days, I'm primarily a bassist. I've also been a composer, a stand-up comedian, um, a broadcaster. I'm a writer a bit. Um, uh, yeah, I've done, I'm multi-talentless. Um, but, uh, uh, mainly these days, most of my work, well, my, my work is basically podcasting and bass playing these days, which is nice. It is an amazing journey to think about what that four string instrument has done in terms of all the places and adventures it's taking you on and how it's expanded your creative horizons in so many different ways. The bass to me, it's like, well, I feel like I'm that awful guy and the bass is just that really wonderful, incredible woman who just stands by you through thick and thin. And I go off and I sort of some young floozy takes my eye and I go and do that. But she sits at home and she waits and I come back with my tail between my legs, you know, every time. And there's magically not only the four strings, but some type of gig waiting for you as well. I'm 61 now and I've had basically had a whole working life of my world just turns on a phone call. Every now, you know, that that's what it is, that, and that's how it's always been, and it, and I still think it's, you know, it's surely we're past that now, and then we're not, and then like, you know, it was when was it? It was just a few months ago, six seven months ago. Suddenly, my phone goes, and it's Pete Townsend, and my world is just upside down again. It's very funny actually, because when he called me to go and record, because he's why I'm a musician, so that was just like the ultimate, but. When he called me, when I put the phone down, my missus was upstairs with one of her sons and they were scared to come down because they thought something really, really bad had happened. They thought like my computer crashed because I was screaming. <laughs> I feel like you and I have some really dynamic connective tissue. I'm a bit <laughs> younger than you are, probably by a decade actually. And in 1982, 83, the Who did their final concert in Toronto. And we had a beta VHS, a beta max, as I say VHS, right. a beta VCR tape of it. And my, my older brother showed it to me and that totally changed my life. I mean, it opened oh. up my world to everything. The Who is to this day, one of my most favorite bands. My biggest regret in having this podcast is the fact that I will never get to interview John Entwistle. Although we did bring on Steve Luongo as the first non-bass player to talk because he'd been curating a bunch of John's music. Oh, right, Just such a right. huge fan. I can't imagine Pete Townsend called, although I've had the pleasure to interview him many years ago as well. Is that just because he's working on something and knows your, like, what's that like well, in terms here's of the his funny thought thing. process? We've been, I've been sort of in his orbit for years and it, it's uh, been like, I've always known, because the, there are some bands who do this and some don't. Pink Floyd have very much done this, where there's a huge family that spreads up around them and it goes across generations, but there's this family and it's massive and it's a really great thing and everyone's kind of connected. And the Who have that. 
the Who have this family that stretches out all the way from kind of Richmond to, and, and it goes through every, and it goes through three generations now of various musicians and, you know, and just people. And I've always been in bits of it, you know, like I knew Alan Rogan really well for years, Pete's Tech, and Billy Nichols I knew. And I was, I was friends with Billy Nichols' son and all sorts of stuff nearby, but never, you know, and then, but I could never meet Pete because I always used to say I can, the only thing I could guarantee whenever I met Pete, who was always so nice to me, he's always been made aware of, of how I feel about it. And I, all I can say is, is that all the times I ever met Pete, I could give you an absolutely detailed description of the shoes that I was wearing because all I'm doing is looking at them. And, but then, but it was the sweetest thing before the phone call I got, and there was, it, it, it was this, e this email, no, he called me, but he'd already sent this email, which I hadn't seen yet. Which just said, it was just the greatest understatement of all time, which is, I know you've expressed an interest in working with me in the past. Yeah. yeah. So, but the thing I did with him was, um, it was a thing he did for Audible where they basically wanted to talk to him. It was an interview, but it was just him talking. And it was about the period from 79 to 82, which is when he made those two albums, right? Empty Glass, A Chinese Eyes, which are actually kind of the most important bits of his work for me because I'm, it's the same as for you. I was playing catch up. It was 1975 when I first heard Who's Next, which is what, and then from then on, I was catching up. Who by Numbers was the first album that came out in real time, but I'm still yeah. a kid at school. I'm still just a school kid. Then I leave school and I join a band and I know heartbreak and all that. And I get drunk and I take drugs and all that stuff. And that's when he puts out Empty Glass. And now I'm a person living in the world and my artist is talking to me in real time. You know, so that album is just so special. And I had, we had to re redo songs off those two albums. So it, it was, yeah, which it's like, I couldn't have written it myself as a sort of perfect thing to do. It was three days at the studio, the way I describe it, so like three, it was like being at a three day Ted talk. It's, He's just never it's off. Cool. It's AI, it's wave synthesis, it's keyboard, it's, it's Garth from the band. It's, you know, but it's just always something always on. It's amazing. It's such a curious thing. His solo career as well. I think about. White City a lot and how it came out oh. in 1985. And if you just plant it where the world was and what music was really happening, and it still managed to get, it really was a positive trajectory for him. If you consider the fact of the album that came before that, it's amazing how through the decades still, he remains so prolific in just thinking about art and music. It's wild. Yeah. Do you know, okay, interesting bass player's point here is that this is where, of course, you know, Give Blood, one of the greatest bass lines of all time. And this is because David Gilmore brought Pino to, you know, because it's the, but the only person to ever get a co-write on a Pete Townsend record is David Gilmore. And the story of that is because Pete had wrote some lyrics for David's album about face. And one of the, one of the lyrics he gave him was for a song called White City Fighting, right? Ah. And uh, when he sent it to David, David said, Pete, I'm a middle-class boy from Cambridge. You know, I can't sing this. Frankly, it's a bit of a stretch for you. <laughs> so he ended up doing it on his album. But here's the interesting thing with Pino's trajectory is that Pino had only had the Paul Young stuff, and it was David who was the first kind of big name to spot him and put him on his album, and then he took him to Pete. 
So it's one it's of the, you know, so this is like Pino happening in real time as well, if you like. Well, even Pino joining The Who when he did was such a crazy thing to me, being a fan of all these artists from John and was sold to The Who in general, to Pino, and then hearing that he would be the person on the bass, it almost took my breath away. You could have punched me in the stomach and I would have yeah, had yeah. the same reaction. I never would have thought that that connection would have happened. Yeah, I, wouldn't, I mean, so yeah, he had to learn the set in a day, didn't he? Yeah, I think all the grades do. When you just look at all these auditions for who's where, it's it seems like that's yeah, like a really yeah. good skill. About the hardest thing I've ever had to play is I've depped for Norman Watroy with the Blockheads a couple of times. And the first gig I ever did with them was Crop Ready, which is this famous thing that Fairport Convention started. And it's a, and the band didn't rehearse. I, I didn't get to rehearse with them. I didn't get to meet them. I knew a couple of them anyway. I didn't get to meet them. And basically the first time I met them was, the uh, first you know, time I played with them was on stage in front of 16,000 people where I had to play Hit Me With A Rhythm Stick and do a solo in it. And, and also I'm thinking uh, there's 16,000 people out there going, that's not Norman. Oh, <laughs> 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 you know, you've got to be on this. The other interesting part of this Who universe is the fact that you have a really interesting jazz bass called Betsy that actually was Entwistle's bass. It was Entwistle's bass, yeah. But the joke I was used to use about that is that owning a bass that belonged to John Entwistle is like owning a pair of shoes that belonged to Imelda Marcos. I mean, he had all exactly. at some point, you know. But um, yeah, and in fact, you, uh, you can now buy get a replica of it. The bass center do a fantastic, fantastic replica. It's very, very cheap. Appeals to my socialist principles. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I was actually just looking through the drawers here because I thought it might be here, but it's not. I've actually got an Entwistle's watch. What? It's like, like one from of the where? first. Oh. It's one of the first ever digital watches made by the Hughes Corporation, made by the House Hughes Corporation. It takes two batteries, and you can tell the time on it like six times before you have to change the batteries because <laughs> it's from like 1975 or something. I, it was. Here's the thing: when he, you know, when John died, there was this auction at Sotheby's big auction of all his guitars yeah. and everything I went along to it with a friend and this is the one thing that slipped through the net it was like because everything also I, I was with a friend of mine and we said we were thinking of bidding I mean for, forget the bases forget any of the bases you know forget it they're just going to be ludicrous money but there's like there'll be stupid things like sort of cufflinks in the shape of spiders you know classic entrance type stuff go yeah why don't we get this love you and by the time you go to bed, it's already two grand. You're like, oh, mate, it's, it's not enough of a gag for that sort of money. And this just slipped through the net. This watch came up, 180 quid. I went, yes, no one else bid. And it took me years. It got sent to Canada. It got sent to Poland. Went all over. I mean, it cost me a fortune to get this thing working. But then I finally did. Yeah, I've got it. And what was really nice was I remember the first time I wore it out, which would have been a year or two later because it took me that long to get it working. Was I went to something and Billy Nichols was there. Of course, you know, it was the Who's MD and everything. Great original part of the family. And he came and he just said, I remember that watch. So it's oh like, God. actually, he, it's the one he actually wore. Yeah, because what's crazy about your comment about buying a bass from Entwistle is like an Imelda Marco shoe. Yeah. After speaking to Steve Luongo and some other people, it would seem like owning anything from Entwistle is almost conventional because he just bought stuff all the time. Like everything, it was just yeah, this it was thing. 12, he was just 12 of everything, 12 of everything. 
Yeah, just like the Chachka King or something, right? Like, yeah. But what's weird, what's really funny about John though, I, is that that thing of having all, and he was like, he was the first guy to do that. You know, people used to have a guitar and then another guitar. And then, what's so funny is that, but he only ever played one at a time. There'll be the Gibson Firebird, and so that's what he played on the album. That's what he played on the tour. It never occurred to it. He never did horses for courses. It's like, well, maybe I should do my generation on a jazz, like the record. Maybe I should do, you know, yeah. and, and which is, which is so funny. Who's Next and Quadrophenia were the only two albums where he actually sounded like a bass guitar, which is actually, that's yeah. the Gibson years. Those are definitely, that's definitely the best bass sound he ever had. Gibson with the Sun amps. It's true too, that if you think about the state of music instruments and how people collect them and you have player instruments that you would take out on the road and then you have these collectibles that you would never take, it's a bit of a newish thing also because the instrument is fairly new, but it would seem like he might've been like the original bass guitar collector. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. The whole idea of vintage guitars and collecting everything was basically invented by Alan Rogan and Phil Taylor, who were respectively Pete's and David's techs. And it was, I think a lot of it, I think Jimmy Page or was Page or Clapton was the first person to twig that you could actually claim guitars against your tax bill. Because they are the tools of your trade. I don't, and I think people hadn't even thought about that. And especially, of course, we're talking about the 70s when the UK had these insane, ta- like, you know, the rich were being taxed up to 90%. So people were just buying as much stuff as they could. But even as recently as, you know, Johnny Marr telling me that when he first made money with the Smiths, it was just like, great, I can buy guitars. He said, guy, back then, they were just called old guitars. I think even in the 80s, people were able to pick up like what would you consider a classic jazz bass for a couple hundred bucks. You know, it's really only recently that we're seeing these ridiculous prices. Yeah, I bought Betsy in February 1987 and I paid a grand, which was, the, that's what always amazed me was there was, there was no Entwistle premium. It's like, mate, I will pay double because it's John Entwistle's bass. But it was like, no, it was just, that was the going rate for 64 jazz, which was actually, I've got to say, which is cheaper than both my Steinberger and my status. I have a feeling that the meandering of this conversation, guy, is going to be driven by also the names and artists that you bring up. You mentioned Jimmy Page, working with him, Coverdale oh, Page. Yeah. Talk a bit about what that gig was like. I remember that because I was a music journalist at the time, and it was clear that this was some kind of reaction to the fact that Plant was just clearly not going to do anything even co-relational to either Jimmy Page and or music that might sound like Led Zeppelin. And it did feel that there was this, I'll call it industry pressure, to bring somebody like a David Coverdale, because the thought was what imagined because of Coverdale's pedigree and what he was doing. Do you Talk know what? Be, what was, yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting because funny enough, we just had David Coverdale uh, on the podcast. On your podcast, yeah. Recently. Yeah. No, for the second time, because he has become the absolute patron saint of our podcast. He's just it's amazing. He, he's an unwritable character. He is just beyond any level of adorable there is. Yeah, um, hilarious too. Uh, just hilarious. I could listen to him say the word evil all day. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't actually know anything about the origins of that. I had always had it in my head that it was, if anything, it was driven by David. You Maybe. Know, David's, David, that David was kind of coming off his big white snake thing. And was trying to think, maybe this is a way of sort of living a dream or, or something. I don't know if it was pressure on, on that. It was, I mean, it came out, it was a very funny thing because it was Lionel, Jimmy's tech, who coincidentally was Gary Kemp's tech. 
who had teched for me when I did the big Nebworth gig with Pink Floyd, where we headlined over Paul McCartney and in 1990. And, and we got on really well. And so he apparently they'd had a couple of bass players that hadn't worked out. And so he'd recommended, but it was this weird thing of, of he couldn't tell me what the gig was. It was all, we had this nickname we called, I mean, me and my manager, he, we, he said, have you heard from Secret Squirrel? We just called him Secret <laughs> Squirrel, affectionately. Because there was this thing, you know, can you do that? There's this gig. Are you good? I said, well, it, it kind of depends who it is. He goes, no, 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 you'll like it. You'll like it. Trust me. And I remember turning up for rehearsals. It was the, here's, here's one of those things. It's the classic thing. Like, for instance, I was talking about Pete earlier, how Pete is, you know, always terrified me. I'm kind of past that. David terrified me for years. We were great friends and he still terrified me. But then some, and the prospect of meeting Jimmy Page was terrifying. Just the thought of him was really scary. And yet it was that weird thing of when I met him, how that all evaporated. I felt so comfortable around him immediately. And the great thing is when you work with someone like that and it's like, fucking hell, he is that guy. He absolutely is that guy. His comprehension of music and stuff. I mean, I, there was one oh. quite funny thing. I can't remember what track it was, but it was something quite tricky. An old Zeppelin one. And I remember, and I, I, she having to sit at home sort of really late at night working out this riff, working out this riff, and working, going in the next day and going, okay, Jimmy, I got that. And he went, no, 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 it's not that. I went, what? What well, is? No, no. And he goes, look, it's this. And I remember looking at his hand thinking, but it can't be that. That would be ridiculous. Fucking hell, it is. And um, Amazing. Yeah. But and I used to have this joke that, like, for instance, the, the way he counts, it's, it would be um, like, don't ever watch his foot. With most people, if you're in trouble, just look at their foot, right? With his, never. Don't let, because it's doing, it's in some weird Raga Contra Temple compound time thing. A lot of his stuff is just kind of uncountable. We used to have, especially in my time of dying, there's all these bits in it, where there'd be what I call, I say, oh, oh, it's a bar of pie four. <laughs> <laughs> for those who don't know, Guy, what was the role? Was the album the tour? What were you brought in? Oh, okay. Sorry. The album was done. I don't know why they weren't using whatever that bass player was. And this was meant to be a big American tour, a big American okay. arena tour. But then that wasn't selling that well. And then they were, it was going to go down to theaters, but David didn't want to do that. So it ended up just being Japan, which is a real, well, it's not a shame. And a, but as David was saying, the thing is, there were people filming it and stuff. And of course, now with machine learning and everything, you can upscale video and sound so much that there might well be something to come out of that. So yeah, it was just these Japanese states, but it was funny because it was enormous. It was the Budokan. It was, yeah. you know, it was all big arena shows, but only in Japan. It was just the best fun ever. We were doing White Snake tunes. The funny thing is when you play for a band like Pink Floyd, people think you're in rock world and you're just not at all. None of the people I were, we don't look rock and roll. We don't, we don't, do rock and roll things. It's all, you know, and I, so I'd never really been in that rock world before. And it was, so I felt like, you know, I was a bit of a tourist, a bit of a voyeur, but it clearly worked because David then asked me to go and play on a Whitesnake album. The level of musicianship and everything. That's about, I mean, Danny Carmassi is still one of the most impressive drummers I've ever yeah. worked with. I'm speaking to you today from Montreal and oh. we just had a massive exhibition for Pink Floyd called Their oh, Mortal yeah, yeah. Remains. Yeah. And, Again, this was a band for me that I came in a bit later and never dove deep like some of my peers did. It's a band that I came to appreciate as I expanded my horizons of music and I found myself walking through 
this incredible exhibition. It was really mind-blowing. But as you reach towards the end of this, again, large and expansive exhibition, you start seeing albums like A Delicate Sound of Thunder and Pulse and a lot of this stuff from The Division Bell. And this is the work you had an intrinsic part in. And it made me reflect on how we as fans of music tend to generationalize bands. When I think of Pink Floyd, you'll easily go, well, Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall. But it's astounding the body of work that just you took part in with Pink Floyd when you can listen to it out of context. I played with David Gilmore at Pompeii back in 2016, and there's that live album. I think I'm, what I really love about that is if you look at that track listing, more than half of that is mine. You know, it's, I'm, I'm not wild. in anyone's, you know, which is because um, obviously there's his solo stuff as well. But, you know, and also the fact of, in terms of filming, most people who come to Pink Floyd late or are just younger people, what they're actually going to, the visual representation they're going to know of Pink Floyd is Pulse or maybe Delicate Sound yeah. of Thunder. It's us. It's us that they'll see, which is great. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm still kind of in awe of Pulse as a piece of work and not so much as an album, but more what I'm in awe of is the fact of that's actually what we sounded like every night. That is literally what we were. And that is astounding. I get to speak to amazing musicians, primarily bass players, who I think stories are known, but maybe not told enough broadly. It's a passion project of mine. I love doing this. And normally at the beginning, I like people to go through maybe even almost chronologically what they've done. And I think what you're giving us is a taste of the incredible career that you've had. But I want to go a little bit back to the beginning, because there's still a bunch of artists that you've worked with that we have to talk about. You started on the bass, you were around 14 years old. You weren't somebody who was on the guitar that switched to bass, which no, is unique in no. and of itself considering the time. What attracted you to the instrument? Where did you first hear it? How did you get your first bass? I had no interest in the bass whatsoever. None. The, the last thing on earth I wanted was a bass guitar. I wanted an electric guitar. Same as that, I'd fallen in love with rock and roll, with The Who in particular. And I pleaded with my parents. And of course, my mum said, oh, darling, why don't you get a nice Spanish guitar? And I was like, Spanish? Fuck that. It was like, I could do that at school. The whole point was it stuff you couldn't do at school. Pop music was not in the mainstream. I listened to John Peel late at night under the covers. It was all meant to be completely unacceptable. But when she said to get a Spanish guitar, the whole point was it was the electric bit I was interested in. So frankly, a toaster would have been closer to what I was after than a Spanish guitar. So it was... It's the only way around. I thought, I'll ask for a bass guitar because they're not going to get me a double bass. And it, it somehow seems more harmless. I didn't really know what it, I knew it was kind of bigger. And I knew about Rickenbackers. I really like the look of Rickenbacker basses. So my dad turned up on Christmas Eve because my birthday is very close to, my, to Christmas. So my mum and dad clubbed together and got me for birthday and Christmas a bass guitar and I was kind of left with this thing and it was huge and it had four strings and I didn't have an athlete. Or anything. And I was just like, on this thing. But then the brilliant thing that happened was that um, I went back to school. Well, I was at boarding school. I went back to school early January. And of course, what had happened was some three, probably three kids had successfully lobbied to get guitars for Christmas. So there were three guys who had a guitar. Now, if they wanted to be a band, that was my call. And uh, Listen, I'd this actually is the, already. This is the success of every great bass player guy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. You got the guitar. No I'm jealous. But you want to be? You want to be a band? Yeah. Exactly. 
It's a joke I used to do in my stand-up. I said, you know, most bands had a roadie before they had a bass player. And then they had a lawyer before they had a bass player. <laughs> and there was this guy who I'd actually become friends with anyway, who was a year above me, who was very, very cool, Led Zeppelin fanatic, called Martin Glover. And he managed to blag this attic above the gym at school, which was amazing, which was actually the first showing of what an incredible hustler that this guy actually was, because we now know him as youth bass player for Killing Joke and legendary wow. producer. So it was me and him who started playing music together. And then his mate, his big mate's school, was Alex Patterson, who then went on to found The Orb. So wow. it was quite a cool little... I mean, yeah, what's nice about that, though, is that I think we were the only three kids at school who were into... There's usually loads of kids at school who go, yeah, I'm going to start a band, right? And of course, no one does. Whereas with us, there was just us. It's pretty much just us. And we all said, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to do music. We all pulled it off. You just think about where you're born in the genetic lottery of life. And people talk now a lot about privilege. And it's amazing that whether privilege was skin color or wealth, certain people are just born at a moment in time that gives you tremendous creative outputs. It's wild. Yeah. 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 There's all sorts of, well, don't start me on like the way the lad has been pulled up on the young. So yeah. So we had this band and yeah we had two little dance set record players that we stuck together with blue tack and somehow made into amps i still don't know how we did it you know it's the yeah. risk of electric shock at any time so that's where i started and it's quite funny because i was only really listening to rock music and as that's not really where it's at bass playing wise it wasn't really till i got hip to reggae and punk and stuff that you suddenly think oh my god this really can be fun well that's the interesting part about the bass too is it's one thing to understand with interest where you start and how you get going. But there's another inflection point, which is when you decide, I'm actually going to do this. Do you remember when that was, when you said this is actually a real career? It's one of those things where you don't know what your life is or what it was and why you did what you did until you've lived it. And it's only now in the fullness of time, looking back, that it's now absolutely absolutely 100% clear to me exactly what happened, which is that I got back to school with my bass and then my dad got cancer and he was dead six months later. And the last thing he ever gave me was this bass guitar. And so that's the only instruction I ever had from my dad. So that's what I was going to do. It never occurred to me, I am going to be a bass player. It literally was, I wasn't going to think of anything else. I left school at 16. I did everything wrong. Frankly, I could have done with a bit more parental guidance. If my dad was still around, he hadn't died. He probably would have gone, oh, come on, guy. maybe you want to go to college or something. But he wasn't there, so that's what I was going to do. The other thing, which is where it starts to get really spooky, is that I forgot the other part of my present until it was on August 5th or 6th, I can't remember which one, 1988, when we'd been on tour. Pink Floyd had been on tour for nearly a year, and then we finally played London. It was like ultimate prodigal sun returns. It was two nights at Wembley Stadium. Wembley Stadium is the ultimate, ultimate fucking dream, any English kid in a band. And I was walking up back steps to the stage to do the gig when I suddenly remembered that when my dad gave me the bass guitar, he also gave me a copy of Dark Side of the Moon. Wow. That's intense. And was, yeah. And it's like that had been packed away for a year, you know, until then, literally walking up the steps of Wembley Stadium. <laughs> The other magical aspect of your career, and every career has ups and downs and moments that are more quiet and moments that are more busy, is you've got mate, really mate, active. So can we talk about ups and downs? Sorry, can I just quickly interject here? Can sure. I point out, 
of my 40 years career, at least 20 years of it, man, has been just sitting on the fucking sofa, staring into space, wondering when that phone is going to ring. But within those 20 years, it seems like you <laughs> yeah. did come up with projects. I mean, you wrote a book. You didn't just wait for the gig. Uh, no, you no, you must no. I mean, I did used to do that for a long time, but and then, but but a lot of the times you, I try and start things, but it was kind of half-hearted anyway. But no, when you get older, you you kind of there's a thing I've always been in terrible fear of, and as I get older, I really see it manifesting in people, and it's the thing I called sideman bitterness, which is people have had that nice cozy gig for years, but they haven't built anything, and they don't understand. Where's the acclaim? Where's the recognition? It's like, mate, it isn't coming because you didn't be, it's like, and it doesn't even matter how much music you contributed to something. That's not it. That's 30% of being a band. You didn't have to make policy. You didn't have to meet the accountants. You didn't have to make those decisions. So it's, you've got to have something of your own. So that's why, you know, when I went out and did my comedy thing, which is the most scary thing in the world, so absolutely terrifying, but so satisfying as well, because it's, if you have those big gigs, nothing is ever on the line. If you go out on stage with David Gilmore and play Wish You Were Here, you know what's going to happen. You go out on stage with Brian Ferry, you play Love Is The Drug, you know what's going to happen. There's no risk here. There's no danger. If something's going to go wrong, it's just going to be something technical. Do my comedy of going standing up in front of eight, just 80 people, 100 people. You don't know. They don't know, you know, and it's, and to have that and it's, and it's brilliant. And I like, and you own it, you own it, whatever happens. The same with writing a book, you own it. So whatever it is, no matter how small, that's why I applaud people like Dominic Miller. He's an absolute top guy in the world and he's got his sting gig and that's sort of in his back pocket forever. But whenever he's not doing that, he's fucking out there with his band. He's doing his little gigs. He's doing his albums. So he will always have that comfort of knowing he's done his bit. Look at Tony Levin. Tony, exactly the same. He's great. Example. Could there be a more established, safe player? But he's not. He's out there with the stick men. He's out there in the van. And, uh, <laughs> in in the van. Yeah. I mean, that's what used to make me laugh when I toured with David Gilmore because it's also like there's so many days off and so many. So I would book in little stand-up shows, and it's just so funny. I wonder my day job with David, where everything is so super. It's like if I, you know flick my cigarette and someone's there with an ashtray before the ash hits the ground and dusting your pedal board and everything like that. But then that night, I'm hauling my amp up the steps of some little art center and plugging up my pedal board and everything myself. And I'm happy to do that. It reminds me, there's a so, great documentary I'm sure you saw called 20 Feet from Stardom about yeah, people who yeah. play with famous people. A lot of stories in there about them during the day trying to get stuff together and you don't realize they're on stage with Madonna, whoever. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. I, I heard a lovely story recently. I've recently moved out into the country in Sussex and so I've had to get to know the local cab company. And there's a lovely guy who picks me up sometimes, Chris, and, and uh, he just said, is, is it true? I heard something about you being a bass player. I said, yeah, yeah, I am. So, no, I used to be a bass player. I said, oh, really? Because, yeah, I was in this band. We were not much. We supported a few people. I said, oh, really? Who'd you support? Oh, the Clash, Blondie, Specials. So I'm whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. What? And it turns out he was in this band, Whirlwind, who I remember, who were a rockabilly band, which at the time of punk, if you could play, if you had chops and you wanted to be cool, but you didn't want to be in a punk band, you used to in a rockabilly band because you were cool. You were allowed. This band, Whirlwind, I remember, I remember seeing them at the Nashville 
But he's just had this lovely story. They used to support The Clash quite a lot. This is The Clash at the height of their powers. And he said, yeah, with this gig in Italy, he said, our drummer couldn't make it. So uh, we're in a pub Monday night and there was some, some bloke playing with a band, some Scottish drummer. And he's playing with this band. And we said, oh, listen, do you want to, are you available to come do this gig with us? And he went, yeah, sure, all right. So he said, on Wednesday, <laughs> we fly out to Italy and uh, gig's on Thursday. But apparently Topper, you know, the Clash's drummer, has OD'd or something and he can't do the gig. So they're going to cancel and, the, and they're not, this drummer we've got says, well, actually, I, I'm a massive Clash fan. I, I know all the songs. And they go, oh, right, well, will you do it? He went, yeah, okay. So he played with Whirlwind. He then played with The Clash. But the way this guy, Chris, says it, it's fantastic. He said, so Monday night, uh, we meet this bloke in the pub. Uh, Wednesday, we take him to Italy. Thursday, he's playing for The Clash. Friday, he's back in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you could better define the circle of life than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a book, a guy called Craig Brown, very brilliant sort of British wit and writer, wrote this book about the Beatles called One, Two, Three, Four. And it's all just these interesting little vignettes that you wouldn't necessarily think about, like all this fringe stuff. And one of them is the guy who played drums for the Beatles for like two or three shows in Hong Kong or wherever. And it just ruined his life. Ruined yeah, his whole life. I, imagine. You know? yeah. <laughs> so. I want to talk a little bit about how music comes and goes in your world. Ice House was obviously, I would assume, the first big break. Yeah, We've absolutely. talked about things like Pink Floyd, Coverdale Page. One of the tours that changed me as a young person was David Bowie's Serious Moonlight. It's a, another gig you were a part of as well. Yeah. So how do these things happen? How do you move from one place to David Bowie saying, Guy, come with me? No, no, that wasn't with him. I mean, that was, uh, that was an ice house. I don't know. I mean, you've got to remember, every, everything was moving so insanely fast in my life. I'd literally gone, the ice house thing just came out of the blue. I was on the dole. I was living in a house up that Brook Grove. And suddenly I'm in Australia in what, basically one of the biggest bands in the country. And it's like full of pop stardom. But what was brilliant about that was that they were nothing anywhere else. So I come back to London and I'm just some wanker sitting down the laundromat, which is great. And it actually made me a lot more sympathetic to all the pop stars of the time. Because I was thinking, fuck, you know, man, a few weeks of that, and I'm expecting people to open doors for me. Obviously, you know, we're very, very young. We're all still children. You can't expect great strength of character from people that young. And you become something of an arsehole. And I used to come home and think, oh, my God, thank God. But then you think, oh, my God, but Simon Le Bon doesn't come home, does he? That's everywhere. It must be so hard to not be an arsehole. You, rather than having a go at people for becoming arseholes, you just absolutely take your hat off to anyone who doesn't. I come back to England. With money, I buy a new stereo. I buy an old Framus electric double bass. I've got money. I've never, you know, I'm buying everyone drinks at the pub. It's fantastic. And then we have a hit single in England. And we're on top of the pops. Again, your first, that was first dream, top of the pops. And then Bowie puts out Let's Dance, which is just, you know. The, yeah, that amazing. album. I, it, yeah, I love it. it. It was just, but that, but it was perfect for me because I was on such a kind of new, because all of us in England, we're on such a big, there was such a brilliant crossover happening with rock and we we're all into, you know, it was the early days of hip hop and we we're all so up for that and all that stuff. And suddenly, you know, suddenly he's working with Nile Rogers and doing something that has all those chic guitars on it and everything. And Tony Thompson. And it's like, yes. So we get invited to tag along with that. And apparently it was Bowie who asked for Ice House to be on that tour. But then 
Also because that, the other thing I was obsessed with was this album Pride that Robert Palmer had just put out. I was right. obsessed with which is a result. He'd been working with Gary Newman before, and he was totally hip to this electric thing. And what was amazing about Pride, which is I'd still, it's still a magnificent piece of work, and it's totally electro. It's all synths and bumps and squeaks, and, but every single note on it is played. Every note is played. I love that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. There's not one machine on it. All the drums are electronic, but it's someone playing them. And then we do these festivals before the Bowie shows, and he's on them. It's like, oh my God, Robert Palmer is on this bill. And then one day we're doing our set. We're on really early in the afternoon. I look over and he's at the side of the stage and he's checking me out. And then he's inviting me to the Bahamas to work with him. It's like everything is so nuts. I don't know where I am. I don't have any real social graces at this point. I don't know how, you know, I've never been to these places. I'm in these lovely hotels and I don't know, how do you behave? I don't know. So Yeah, it's like you're Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. And it's amazing, too, that you start seeing how things evolve for your career. It's David Bowie, it's Robert Palmer, it's Brian Ferry, Madonna, Michael Jackson. You're moving not just in associations with people who know people, like you would go from Pete Townsend over to another artist that he befriended, but you're moving into this area where the stakes are really high. I mean, these are significant yeah. stakes with artists that are doing significant albums. It's not like it was Madonna's demo. I mean, that Like a Prayer bass line is a significant part of what makes that song move, and that's you. Yeah. No, I know. And it's, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. But um, there's, yeah, because there's still a part of me, I, I, I don't know. If I am, if I'm some brilliant, manipulative hustler, then it's buried so deep in my subconscious I will never know what I was doing, but there must be something. It's always seemed to me, right, to be certainly as far as I'm aware, the only kind of edict I've stuck by, the ethos is only ever go where you're wanted. That's all I've always done. The company I keep, everything is just just go where you're wanted. Don't force yourself anywhere. And um, but because actually the most important of all the records I did, the one that actually pretty much everything can be traced from, is that Brian Ferry album, Bet Noir, and that came about. Through again, it's the, the connections are nuts because Rhett Davis, Brian Ferry's Roxy Music's producer, was brought in to work on an Ice House album because it was like, you know, we sounded so much like Roxy anyway. And he stole me. He just said, Listen, guy, you'd be perfect for Brian. And the things, the way that Brian was working at that time was whenever he had an idea, he'd go to New York, book the power station, get Marcus Miller, Andy Newmark, or whoever. And his management was just going, We can't suit this. And Rhett's thing was like, you've got a, there's a great little studio the record company has just off the King's Road. You need just a little English unit. You just need a couple of kids you can work with. And he already had Chester Cayman. And then he thought I would be the perfect other one. So I get pinched. So then I'm in this absolutely just heavenly situation where I'm just locked in the studio with Chester Cayman and all of Brian Ferry's tapes. And then we've just got to mess around and mess around with Brian and help Brian build an album from the ground up. And then all this stuff happens, like Brian has this brilliant idea of the biggest, act, the biggest thing in town at the moment, and the coolest thing by a million miles, is the Smiths. The Smiths have this song, Big Mouth Strikes Again. The B-side is an instrumental called Money Changes Everything. Brian has the idea of, I could write a song over that. <laughs> and so we cut the track. It's certainly not quite there, not quite right. 
So let's get the guy who wrote it. Johnny Marr comes in, changes my life forever, forever. I still, to this day, love that man so much. In fact, I sent him a text this afternoon because I've just seen, he's got, his book is coming out of his guitars called Mars yeah. Guitars, which I'm very, very excited about. Uh, I think one, one that he bought off me is in there. But anyway, so there's that. So that, Johnny Marr has just been dropped in my lap, which is utterly life-changing. Mean Chester was life-changing. He's still one of my greatest friends. Then David Gilmore is coming in to play guitar. Then Pat Leonard enters the scene to produce. Pat and I hit it off. And from that, so from this album, we've got, I then get, you know, I spend a week in the Smiths. It's also through Johnny, I meet Kirsty McCall and Steve Lillywhite, which is how I end up working with Debbie Harry and Iggy Pop. And then through David Gilmore, we know what happens there. And then Pat Leonard, which is just so magical, which led to That's Madonna, Toy Matinee. And actually, a million, I've done a million things with Pat. And Pat is my dream. You know, whenever I work with Pat, I feel such a pressure. And I find this insane because, you know, Pat's worked with Stanley Clark, Patatucci, everyone. And he has this thing of like, no, you're the best bass player in the world. And it's like, which I'm clearly not. <laughs> but whenever I work with Pat, I do something brilliant. I do like a prayer. I do something. And it's because he has this understanding of what I can do and should do way better than I do. And he knows how to get it out of me. So whenever I go into prayer with him, it's like, fuck, I'm going to have to do something brilliant. But you know what? I come out and I have done something brilliant because he's made me do something brilliant. It's a sign of a great producer, but I think yeah. more than that, it's the sign of what everybody wants in life, which is a great coach, someone who takes them Ex to a place they didn't exactly. realize they should be going. Exactly that. Exactly that. Can you talk a little bit about playing in the moment and then how you're changing or thinking about it? I can tell by the interviews and even this conversation that you do have a humble part of you, but at the same time, I see in your playing that there's a overbearing confidence in really allowing yourself the space to play and figure things out and then figure out what you did and decompose it and do it again but make a great player there's no doubt but you are at a point where you're thinking to yourself david bowie robert palmer madonna michael jackson this is a lot of not just people who are calling on you but also they are different are you thinking about the instrument in different ways? Are you changing the way you're playing? Or are you recognizing that they want you for what you do and it's actually quite solitary? Yeah, the worst thing, I think probably for a player, the worst thing is when you're thinking about, right, they want me, I've got to be me. Because then immediately <laughs> you're into all sorts of existential but who am I? What is this? And, and that never works because then you're going to start trying to think, you're going to start trying to do things that you've done. And that's a, someone made a really good point on the radio today talking about AI. And they're saying the thing is, for instance, like to get someone to copy, say, Mozart or Jimmy Page or whatever, the reason that won't work is for the simple reason that if you ask a machine to do that, it's going to gather everything Mozart's ever done or everything Jimmy Page has ever done and it's going to listen to it all and go, this is what he does. What it's not going to do is know who those influences were, who his influences were, what the stuff he'd been listening to when he wrote this piece was, what he was thinking of, how he was thinking of performing that piece. None of the stuff behind them. It's the stuff that comes before the music that comes. And I, I really don't know. I, I mean, to a part, yes, you are deaf playing a role, but that comes after it. it I, I don't know what I'm going to do until I've heard the song. I've never come in. 
thinking, okay, I've got to be Peter Hook. And then I hear the song. I'll listen to the song and go, oh, I could be Peter Hook. That's yeah. very spontaneous and improvised. Some players would spend a lot of time before they go and thinking, I'm going to go three or four ways here. Yeah, I don't really know. But there's two ways of looking at it. I always have this, there's this phrase I love, which is, which is like, for instance, Murder on the Dance Floor by Sophie Ellis Baxter, which is one of my favorite. And it's, it's not flashy or showy, but it's just like, it's a perfect little bit of disco and it's a perfect thing for the song where it's kind of, it's as present to the listener as you want it to be. You can ignore it or you can make it the focus of the song. And that literally fell out of the bass. I literally walked in and went, okay. And it's like, I just happened to be holding the bass when it happened. It's like, I don't even take the credit for it. That is just a thing that happened while I had the bass on. That's why all my best work tends to have been in band situations. Which is why possibly my best recorded work ever is Toy Matinee, the Toy Matinee album. And that's because we had months. We had months of going back in and like, oh, do that. Because one of the things I had as a session cat, and I never wanted to be a session cat. I wanted to be in a band. I just wanted to be, you know, but although now I realize I'm so glad I was never in a band. I love being a sort of serial band member, but the idea of just playing the same music with the same people for years, for years is, seems fucking terrible. (laughs) 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 But you are having a lot of fun right now with Nick Mason's saucer full of secrets. Do you know, I was thinking about this earlier today because that's, yeah, that's kind of the only consistent play I'm doing at the moment. And it's, and I worry, the thing is great as it is and great fun as it is, I don't know actually how good it is for me as a bass player because I literally, I play all, all the basses I play are basses I don't like because they're the ones that are right. And it also, like I said, me playing a Rickenbacker with a pick is literally like having one arm tied behind my back, which is what is necessary for the material. Because the last thing you want is me getting funky on the Nile song or see Emily play. So, and I can't do that on a Rickenbacker. I can't. If you give me a Rickenbacker and a pick, I'm Mr. Meat and Two Veg Rock and Roll, which is what is required. But I was thinking, I've been doing this for a long time now. <laughs> this might actually be bad for me. <laughs> but yeah, because that is, the, in terms of a band, this is such a perfect thing because it makes everyone reflect on whether it was a band. Like, I see, there was such a big thing. When we started about Gary Kemp, Gary Kemp, what Gary Kemp, what's he doing there? And the thing that's interesting is that there's nothing like the gap between him and Nick that you would think there is. All great British youth music movements all started with a band in a club at the center of that. In 1967, it was Pink Floyd in the UFO. And then in 1970, you had Mark Bolan. In 1964, it was The Who at the Marquee. And then in 1976, you had the Sex Pistols at the ICA. And then in 1978, 79, you had Spandau Ballet at Blitz. It's the same fucking thing. Gary said, those days of the Blitz, they had a lot of people there, the sort of older clubbers, who were from the UFO club. So you're continuing the same narrative. What's so lovely is that when when the first gigs we did were literally pub gigs. I've only ever been on stage with Nick in stadiums. So to be on this little pub stage and I look back and there's Nick and suddenly I see that kid on stage at the UFO. And I look at Gary and I see that kid on stage and I'm reconnected with that kid on stage at the Hope and Anchor. And the Mm. audience is connected to that. It's amazing too when you think of no matter what genre you listen to, in most cases, it's that. And I think it's probably universal by geography as well. I know Canada has that as well for sure. 
2007, yeah. you wrote a book with my, what might be my favorite book title ever, My Base and Other Animals. In fact, I was thinking as I was preparing for this conversation, Guy, that I should rename this podcast Base and Other Animals. It would be a great name for oh. the podcast. Um, <laughs> well, it doesn't scan quite right because it's based on the Gerald Durrell book, My Family and Other Animals. Oh, okay. So it should actually, yeah, so it should actually be My Base Guitar and Other Animals. But, All right. But My Base and Other Animals seem right. All right. Is there another book? In, I mean, 2007 was a while ago. Are you thinking about putting more stories together? I have done. Here's the problem is because I, I, I really don't like writing. I, I just don't enjoy it. That's why. <laughs> don't write I, a book, short <laughs> articles. I like writing short articles. I get asked to write things and I like doing that. But writing the book is too. And I don't like my writing style. I find it very repetitive. The problem is with that book, I had an absolute embarrassment of riches. There's so much stuff that I had to leave out. Whereas I just get the feeling for the second one, there is a book. There would be a bit of eking going on. So I don't really feel comfortable doing that. And listen, I had lockdown to do it and I didn't. If it doesn't happen in lockdown, it's not happening. I agree. Yeah. So, <laughs> although having said that, there are all sorts of, I was going to finally learn to read music. I signed up for so many things. I signed up for so yeah. many things in lockdown. I'm still Amazing. finding subscriptions, thousands I spent, things I never looked at. In the late 80s, I was studying the electric bass post-secondary, almost heading towards college. And at the same time, I was very lucky at a young age to be able to become a professional music writer, being paid to write for all these fun magazines and interviewing all these amazing artists. And I that, decided- That is a brilliant thing. That must be great. Yeah, oh, it was great, yeah. Because you're such a bitch when you're that age as well, aren't you? Oh, it, it was nine. For me, I was 17 and my first job was interviewing Tommy Lee from Motley Crue for the Dr. Feelgood album. So you can imagine the oh, moment really? in the air. And I loved all music, so I was really down a deep rabbit hole. But I remember distinctively being in music school and thinking to myself, I prefer writing and talking about music than playing it. And... I want to come full circle here because I just watched you in an interview say that it's hilarious how much you enjoy talking. I thought that was a very, it was a statement that hit me to my core because I realized that even in this project of trying to gather all these amazing bass players in their oral history, it's less about bass and playing. It's more about just talking about music. Like I love it so much. So, uh, I, well, well that, but that's exactly what the podcast is. And, and I think especially, you know, for me, because it's, because music is essentially historical for me now. And it, it's, um, I mean, yeah, I go out and play with the band and I love that. I love playing when I do, but if I'm honest, I'm not looking for new music. I'm not looking, you know, I'm trying to, for a start, I'm actually really trying to generate a better knowledge of classical music now. And it's, I, because I'm not, because when I listen to Marla, I'm not just going, oh yeah, that's that chord. Oh yeah, that's, oh, what delay settings that of what. And um, so yes, a lot of it is, and, and it's just, such fun to talk about music. It's, it really is. It's, I mean, you've got all the kind of nonsense that you'd get with kind of football or Formula One, or but it, it, especially for that's why I love with because for me, music was always about more than music. It was about the trousers and the politics and the you know all all that stuff. And it's so yeah, I, I, it's a big. It's certainly in certainly in Britain, it's kind of the you know the socio political history of the 60s through the 80s is told through music. Yeah, 100%. Well, Guy, I want to thank you so much for your time. It was a total pleasure. And I don't even feel like we scratched the surface on no, how you play. Let's not come back. I really enjoyed it. It's just been a treat. So just thank you so much for your time. You're very, very welcome. And to everyone at No Trouble, by the way, great work. I love it. Uh -huh.